0: Well, we're going to look now at Hebrews uh, chapter 2. We started uh, looking at Hebrews 1, bearing in mind this great theme within the book of Hebrews, the supremacy of Christ. And we saw that, although, of course, there are many different strands, many different things that could be followed through in each of these rich chapters. Uh, the, the first chapter was particularly dominated by the thought of the supremacy of Christ as the Son of God. And we're looking at chapter 2, with, particularly with this thought of the supremacy of Christ as the incarnate man, or perhaps we could put it as the second Adam. The supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ as God and the supremacy of him as man we have this one of the central mysteries of the faith that in the one person of jesus there are the two natures deity and humanity without any dilution or mixture of the two natures both nature perfect both nature uh, without sin or without uh, a shadow of darkness and yet both natures united in the one person, our Lord Jesus Christ. We also noted that the first few verses of chapter 2 are in a sense an application, an exhortation of what he has been saying in chapter 1. That's why the first word in our English translation for chapter 2 is the word therefore. In the light of his supremacy as God we must surely hear what God is saying to us, we must surely not neglect it. We must surely uh, pay attention to it and act upon it. And you'll notice uh, our study starting particularly from verse 5 this morning. You'll notice there is a reference back to that section because the first word in verse 5 is the word for. So he's continuing the argument for Unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. He's continuing to say why we should not neglect this great salvation brought to us through Christ. And he's talking about the world to come, as he puts it. It's a particular phrase used. It's almost a technical phrase in the thinking of Jews. At this time, it's talking about the Messianic age. And we are in no doubt about that because of that phrase, whereof we speak. In other words, he's already started speaking about this age. And he's done that from the very uh, first two verses of Hebrews 1. That phrase, in these last days, is the equivalent to of the world to come. He's speaking about it now. He's telling us. That we're in these last days, we're between the first and second coming of Christ, we're in the gospel age, the messianic age, whatever phrase we use. And he's saying that in these days, God has not put the subjection of the world under angels, he's put it under Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has supremacy. Supremacy is God, the Son. And also, as we see in this second chapter, supremacy as the perfect man as the second Adam. Now, the way in which he opens up this thought is by quoting the psalm that I read to you earlier, Psalm 8, and specifically applying that to the Lord Jesus Christ. For for unto the angels he's not put in subjection the world to come, but one in a certain place, that is David, testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honour, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. And his Obviously, as I said, quoting Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 8 has two foci. The first focus, of course, is the way in which God has blessed man, made in his image, and and given us, the human race, a particular privilege, a particular honor uh, to be over the works of his hands on earth, to be over the creation uh, from Adam onwards, God has given that blessing, that responsibility to man. And as he says, he's made him lower than the angels, but only a little lower than the angels. Those bright seraphic spirits, those burning fires, those flames of devotion and service to God, those spirits, uh, they have huge privileges and great abilities that we do not fully understand this side of heaven. But man, although flesh and blood, also has huge responsibilities and privileges. And God has not set this world under evolution or under some kind of cosmic force. He's placed this world under man. Indeed, we might say this universe under man. Even the the moon and the stars, God has ordained these For man, as Genesis 1 makes clear, to be signs and seasons in the sky for man's uh, knowledge. And to impress upon us the glory and the immensity of almighty God. Well, it has that focus, but it also, Psalm 8, has this other focus that here is the very representative of the human race, the perfect representative, not now fallen Adam, although he still has many um, privileges, even in his fallen state, uh, and that's true of the human race, but now the focus is on the perfect man, the second Adam, Jesus himself. And so there is, a, there is another kind of edge to this psalm. And there's a a, a kind of second layer here. As we think of Jesus Christ, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? A reminder that we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God has visited us. And God has placed this world in subjection under his Son, under Christ. And even Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Although he is God and ever will be God and ever was God, yet as far as his human nature is concerned, he's been made a little lower than the angels at this point in the coming into this world. Of course, now in heaven he's higher than the angels, but at this point in his incarnation, he is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And yet there's also this note of triumph. He's crowned with glory and honor because he's tasted death for every man. And so he's saying, it isn't angels who are ruling, it's Christ, the son of man, the second Adam who is ruling. He is supreme. And therefore one of his Applications. One of his practical applications to us is this: You must not worship angels. I mentioned this uh, last week. We mustn't worship angels, whether we're thinking in some sacramental type of religion, in Catholicism or some other such religion, or whether we're thinking in some sort of pagan sense. We're not to worship any other being than Almighty God. It isn't angels who are ruling; it is God, and it's God in Christ. You can think of it like this. Think of number 10 Downing Street, where our Prime Minister lives. And outside the door, there's a policeman. And the policeman lets people in and out. And one of his jobs seems to, let the, to be to let the cat in when it wants to come in. But it's not the policeman who's ruling. You wouldn't go up to the policeman and say, I've just, I've just heard that. Uh, The president of America or the president of Russia has said this. Now, what are you going to do about it? You wouldn't ask the policeman. Or think of some courtier uh, in the palace. Someone perhaps at the gate of the palace. Uh, Maybe uh, for the queue to go in and see the queen's pictures there. Uh, You wouldn't ask that courtier as to what... Uh, the, the the feeling of the state was concerning a particular country in the Commonwealth. You wouldn't do that. They're just servants. They're not ruling. They're just showing us the greatness and the glory of the ruler. They're the outriders, as we were saying last week. And so it isn't angels. It isn't Satan. It isn't his demons. It isn't governments. It isn't the earthly principalities and powers that are ruling over this world. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the perfect man. And God has put all things under him. And you'll notice how earthed the writer is because he makes it clear, yes, I know, he says, we don't yet see all things put under him. I know it doesn't appear that way. But it, all things are under him. As one of the other letters says, he is the head of all principality and power. And therefore, even in a 21st century, amidst the pandemic, amidst the confusions of our world, amidst the pain and the political turmoil, amidst the tensions between major nations, we need to remember that this world is actually under the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is reigning over all things. And as Ephesians makes clear, he's reigning over all things on behalf of his church. But I want to just continue this thought of the supremacy of Jesus as the incarnate man, not, not just because he is the perfect man, the perfect Expression of Psalm 8, the perfect expression of what Adam should be or should have been. But I think there is a particular emphasis in this chapter about the way in which he rules as a second Adam. We're going to just look at that now, the way in which he rules. His supremacy is not just seen in naked power, but in the way in which Jesus exercises his power in the earth. And the first thing we have to say from this chapter is that that power, that rule, is seen in his humble loneliness. His humble loneliness. That's part of that original Psalm 8. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. In other words, God made man, Adam and Eve, and the human race from them, And God didn't say to Jesus, now, you know, that's where they are. I'm going to send you into the world, the Father's saying. But I don't want you to be down there amongst all the minions on the same level as them. I'm going to put you in just a slightly higher category. I'm going to give you a few superhuman powers that others haven't got. So that you can do things as a man... Naturally, as a man, that others cannot do. You can, you can uh, have space travel and, and, and whatever you like to think of. No, he is on the same level as us. He is made a little lower than the angels. And so his body is not like the body of an angel, if we can put it like that. It's not like the body of a resurrected man. It's a body that suffers hunger and tiredness. It's a body that knows pain. It's a mind that knows anguish and sorrow. As he says here, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And it's in, from that perspective that the Son of Man rules this world, having had that in his incarnate life, having experienced that, that is the one who is ruling. And that is another reason why you and I should submit to and worship such a one, why we should not neglect the salvation of such a one. We see it in his, the way in which he rules in his humble lowliness. We see it, secondly, in his willingness to be united to us. United in the sense, as it says in verse 9, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And then in verses 14 and 15, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that he through death might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He's become united to us, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, partakers of flesh and blood, and particularly in that matter of dying for us, tasting death for us, And by taste, he doesn't mean he just got a little sip of it. He just got a tiny fragment of it. It means he experienced it. That's the force of the word. He experienced death. He had flesh and blood. He experienced temptation. He experienced temptation as a man in the wilderness, tempted by Satan 40 days and nights. He experienced hunger. He experienced thirst. And the devil takes him to a high mountain and through his eyes, the eyes of a man, he's allowed to see the kingdoms of this world. The devil uh, does that as an angel and gives him to, to see all these things. He takes him to the top of the temple. He gives him a sense of the, the height of that pinnacle and what it would mean to throw himself off and as the devil would have it, the angels of God will catch you so you do not fall and dash your feet against the ground. But you see, it's coming to him through his physical senses because he's united to us. He's united to man, he's united to humanity and is united to humanity on the cross with the blood trickling down his head with the the, the evil, vicious thorns piercing into him, with the nails piercing into him, with the spear thrust into his sides, with the anguish of the cross, and then having his soul parting from his body in the moment of death, another moment of supreme anguish for Christ. And that is how, you see, he establishes and exercises his rule and his supremacy over us as the Son of Man, not kind of skirting round it and coming in at the last, all supreme, but having dodged what it meant to be a man. But for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil, that is the one, to whom the writer is saying, you must not neglect his salvation. And then thirdly, we see that not only uh, by his humble loneliness, not only by his union with us in humanity, but thirdly, by the fact that this way is so suitable to his character. It's so suitable to his character. Notice in verse 10, the way in which the writer expresses it. He says, for it became him. For whom are all things. By whom are all things. He hasn't lost sight of the fact that he's still speaking about God in Christ. God's son. By whom all things were made. Made for him. Made by him. Made for his glory. He hasn't lost sight of that. But he's saying it's, it so became him. It was so suitable for him. This great one. In order to bring many sons to glory, that he, the captain of their salvation, should be made perfect through suffering. This was something that Jesus, it was intrinsic to him. It wasn't imposed upon him. Think of it like this. You know, there was someone else who carried the cross as well as Jesus of Nazareth there at Jerusalem at the last. Carried the cross. Who was it? It was Simon of Cyrene, and the soldiers, the temple soldiers, drafted him in. He was, perhaps he was just standing there, and they said, "Hey, you, pick up that cross." He had no cho- he had no choice. They'd have run him through if he hadn't done it. We don't know whether or not he knew much about the one whose cross he was carrying. There's a hint that maybe he was converted later because. Uh, he, has, he was the father of Alexander and Rufus and there is a Rufus mentioned in Romans 15. Maybe the son of Simon of Cyrene. We do not know, but we can guess. I'm pretty sure that at the moment he did it, he thought, oh no, I don't want to be doing this. But he did it because it was imposed upon him. But Jesus did it willingly. Willingly and would have done it if he'd had the strength, the physical strength to do it. He willingly drank that cup. He willingly went through with it. He came into this world saying, a body you have prepared for me. I come to do thy will, O God. He came into this world saying, I have not turned my back away from the smiters. My ear is the ear of an opened disciple. Morning by morning it teaches me. It was so suitable to him. It was so intrinsic and deeply intrinsic to him that he should come as our saviour and to give himself and to taste death for every man. That's the one to whom scripture is summoning you and me to serve and to obey and to heed his word. And then we come next to his kind and gentle identification with us as a high priest. This is our fourth division, our fourth reason of the way in which he rules. As a kind and gentle high priest. Notice how the writer develops that particular argument He does so by uh, taking us back into the book of Isaiah. And what we've got from verse 11 through to verse uh, 13. uh, is There is a quote here from Psalm 22, but there's a lot of allusion to Isaiah, chapters 7 and 8. Um, He quotes, for example, the prophet... Isaiah, you can think of those sons he had. I can remember the name of one Maha, Shalal Hashbaz, I forget the name of the other. Um, but the prophet, Isaiah, his wife, his children. and There are not many others who fear the Lord at that time. It's a remnant. It, it, Isaiah 6 to 8 is about the remnant. And so Isaiah says to God about him and his little family, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me, he's conscious that they're in this tiny remnant, and if it wasn't for that remnant, Israel would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, but there is this remnant. But Jesus is not ashamed to be one of that tiny remnant. He's not ashamed to be there in the midst of this church, this small congregation this little flock on earth. He's not ashamed to be there amidst them singing the praise of of his father by his spirit. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed to identify with us. And that's one of the great characteristics of the high priest as Hebrews goes on to say that he has to be taken from among men because he has to have compassion on the ignorant and those that are out of the way, for he himself is compassed with infirmity. He knows how we feel. He knows what it's like to be one of a tiny persecuted minority on earth. He knows what it's like to be tempted and tested and despised and rejected. And this helps him, qualifies him to be a merciful and faithful. High priest because in every respect, in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren. You see, as the writer goes on to say in this letter, he hasn't thought, Ah, oh, there's a there's a great office to have, there's a great place of authority and power in the nation of Israel. High priest Oh yes, I'll go for that and politically work his way up the ladder. No no. It's because he's tender, sympathetic, because he's one with us in our, sin, in our sufferings. Not in our sins, but in our sufferings. Partakers of flesh and blood just like us and yet resisting unto death. That is why he is so, so suitable as a high priest. He wants us to know the supremacy of Christ. We see it, of course, in his glory as God. The outshining, the effulgence of his glory. We see it in him sat there at the right hand of the majesty on high. We see it with the angels falling at his feet and worshipping him. Running off at his bidding. We see it, he says, secondly, see it in this. See it in what it cost him to be the second Adam and to come to the fight. And to destroy him that has the power of death, that is the devil, by his death on the cross. And because of that, submit to him. Hear him. Worship him. So in closing, friends, let us take courage in our present trials if we're Christians. Jesus is ruling over all. God and man. And let us remember that even as the Lord Jesus achieved the crown of glory through his sufferings, so it must be with those that name the name of Christ. As it says here, you crowned him with glory and honour. You set him over the works of your hands. But before that, you made him a little lower than the angels. Something had to be gone through, which only someone lower than the angels could go through, that is death itself.